Hello and welcome to all the roosters and chickens and farm animals that have been awakened by our symbolic call. The theme song shows that it's time for another News of the World, the podcast that looks at news and the world. And we use two particular brains to do it. Uh, one brain belongs to Tim Pritlove, coming to us live from Bristol. Hello, Tim. Yeah, live from the roosters and of the UK. <laughs> That's right. And the other poultry brain comes to you from Amsterdam, and that's me. Bok, bok. Uh, Tim, how's it going? Yeah. <laughs> News. Uh, summer, mm. summer has finally arrived. It makes me uh, rather happy, you know. So, mm, mm. although there's still a lot of bad news coming, at least uh, the sun is shining. So, that's in true. that sense, I'm, <sighs> yes. I'm feeling well. Yes. Yes. And we, we take that sunlight and we hold a magnifying glass up to it and then we focus the heat on specific news items <laughs> before they burn. <laughs> and I got my election uh, uh, papers. So I'm uh, <gasps> ready to elect a uh, you know parliament member or whatever here in the UK. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Are there a lot of parties? I mean, besides like the three or four we hear about? Um, a lot of parties. Um, a lot of other parties. Not, there are more than four. Not, not that. Well, the papers I got didn't include a complete list, so I'm mm. still not sure how many people are actually, you know, on mm. on uh, to be selected from. But you know, as I probably told you before, there's the Green Party here, as, you know, having a chance, especially in Bristol, to you know get a seat. And then there's this usual Labour, Lib Dem, Conservative fiasco, and yeah. Ah, uh, you sound like a true native already. <laughs> <laughs> so say you know how it is. Same thing as last time. Oh, Tim. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No All right. Well, let's 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 start at the top of our mountain of news today. And anyone, I don't even think you have to be in the EU to have heard about this story. It's uh, reached global headlines because it's such a huge tragedy. Uh, the well, more and more migrant boats, specifically uh, as many as 900 people in the last week on multiple boats uh, that have been shipwrecked on their way trying to reach the EU, um, including shipwrecks off the coast of this famous uh, Lampedusa, but also Malta. Uh, um, it's a particularly bad week when it comes to the arrival of these boats. And this comes at the heels of what was announced as a reduction in the amount of... Um, well, uh, the active role that the EU Border Patrol was going to take on these cases, so there's a lot of criticism coming. And so that brings us to our news item today, which focuses on the EU's announcement to launch what they call, I'm putting in, um, in, in quotes, military action against smugglers in, in Libya, smugglers being the people who are, are, as far as we know, gathering people for money, on packing them into these ships. I mean, it's a story that's very well known at this point. Um, and this has sparked a whole lot of talk, of course, here in Europe and around the world. First, about the amount of people that are dying in this whole process, in this whole thing. And second, of course, the question of what are we going to do, right? And then we get into aspects of the many voices that say, look, it's our job to save lives. And they're escaping horrible situations, Libya being the biggest source. Um, so we should accommodate them uh, as best we can. The other voices, uh, including the more conservative voices saying, hey, 
tough luck, right? Uh, uh, we shouldn't allow them just because they arrive and, and however they arrive to just settle or, or be housed. Um, and then the voices in between that say, this is logistically very complicated. If we do uh, take people, how we take them. I've even encountered a few stories of um, non-EU, uh, a Tunisian fishermen or two who are doing their own activities to save people um, in these situations, uh, which is also interesting, but this is, uh, it's an old issue, but it's getting worse and it's all connected to the kinds of conflicts we've covered uh, on this program, especially the Libyan situation. And now we get this whole concept anyway of military action to stop the smugglers. And they even want to cooperate with not only Libya, but well, what, what they can cooperate with in Libya, but also neighboring countries like Tunisia. Uh, even they name Niger in the south to, to take control of or try and get a handle on the, the migration or, or the corrupt sort of, um, you know, it's, it's, a, uh, it's a game that these guys are making money off of. Yeah, I mean, I mean the, the, what the EU somehow is trying to do is to get back to the good old times where the northern part of Africa was uh, secured by dictators <laughs> that were just willing to accept any deal the EU, EU was forcing uh, on them as long as the EU was giving enough um, money for the elites. And now that most of those uh, dictatorships are dismantled and replaced by, well, other kinds of ships... <laughs> Not really hmm. dictatorships, but militias on an unclear um, structures or somehow democratic uh, structures. It's totally unclear who wields the sword here and who is uh, capable of actually preventing people from entering uh, the oceans. And, well, as we see... Uh, it looks as if nobody is really capable, especially not Libya, where the whole state hasn't really stabilized since Gaddafi was killed. So that that's part of the problem. So I don't think that you can do anything here by military action, but because what hmm. what would that be? You know, uh, you would have uh, to take control of the whole uh, country, which is totally impossible. Um, on the other hand, I think what has also worsened is the general situation in all those countries that people are actually coming from. I mean, we've mentioned Syria many times, but there are also quite a few refugees from uh, African states too. It's just the situation that, that that's driving these people to the north. Or they're not going there because they always wanted to take a boat trip to Europe. Uh, it's just... You know they're desperate and and they don't really see any other option. And in that sense, it's also very interesting to listen to people saying, "Well, you know, if we are going to save all those boats, you know, if we if we uh, try to you know have more people on the oceans actually securing these boats when they come, we are only encouraging them to come to Europe." And I don't think that any any of them needs extra encouragement <laughs> to improve mm -hmm. the situation or that that they really you know really think about the consequences that much, or at least they know that these consequences could be dire and that it's a very risky business to go on the Mediterranean to pass over. Yeah. 
but it's in many sense in many ways their only option they they see so i don't think it's about encouragement at all so question is what can the eu do to improve the situation i think it has to focus much more on the situation in those countries and that's something they're not really doing yeah, and and that general sort of populist uh, rhetoric that you get sometimes, I know I hear it here in the Netherlands, uh, depending on who I'm talking to, but this whole, hey, you know, not our problem, uh, of course, there's a tendency to forget things like, uh, well, you know, you might say it's not your problem, but, but people will be arriving here uh, regardless, even if you don't think that it's your problem. And the other thing is, of course, uh, not long ago, we had, you know, who, who overthrew the government in Libya? Well, it was a, there was certainly an involvement of the EU. And, and as you mentioned, even before the overthrow, Gaddafi was paid by the EU uh, to keep people in all kinds of schemes, including prisons, to keep them from migrating on to Italy, right? So we have an involvement here that goes back a very long way. So this is also, you know, the past coming back to haunt us, or at least, you know, the idea that it's not our fault or we didn't do anything and all this is, is not true, uh, you know, basically. But it's easy to look and just go, well, look, uh, this is, oh, we, we, can't, uh, we can't help all these people. We uh, don't have the resources. And uh, so the important thing is just keep them in their country, which is, as you've mentioned, you're you're asking something that is almost impossible for people. I mean, they don't want to leave their home country. I'm sure they love it for many different reasons, but it's untenable. It's it's impossible to stay. So you go in a, with this desperation. So that's why, as you mentioned, the the idea of military action sounds very I don't know impressive initially, perhaps, but in practice, is probably the wrong focus. What you want is stable nations where people can work and live, especially live. Uh, and we don't have that. And uh, I don't know how the EU could could make that happen, but surely there are ways to encourage it. And uh, I'd rather spend time focusing on that 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 which is much more complicated than declaring military operations against smugglers. As much as I do hate the smugglers, because we all know they're they're terrible. Uh, what they do is is pretty horrid. I mean, but yeah. So this issue is going to stay uh, hot, and uh, now it's of course the EU commissioners are all uh, much more concerned about it than they have been in the last year or so. Um, and that could make for some better ideas, but it could also make for some quite reactionary uh, uh, strategies. All right. Yeah. Uh, so down the list now uh, of revisiting an issue we've talked about before on this program, you may recall in Iran, we've discussed the, the imprisonment of, of course, journalists, but there has been one specific journalist, uh, Jason Rezian, the Washington Post reporter, who I first noticed when he appeared on Anthony Bourdain's show on CNN. I'm a big fan of the whole eating and visiting countries, and Bourdain likes to visit uh, more difficult countries. So he goes to Iran and he sits with this reporter, Jason Rezian, and within a week or so, Jason Rezian is taken prisoner, and he's now been held for nine months with no charge. And this may sound like a familiar thing that is possible uh, in not only in Iran, but okay, in this case, Iran. And now after nine months with no charge, he's uh, facing a spy trial. He's being accused of spying for the US. 
uh, or actually, they're not saying the U.S. specifically. They're just giving this vague title of foreign interests. And I wonder why that is. Maybe it's just a game to not be specific. Um, but this is pretty scary. And it is something that has come up in the negotiations uh, uh, with the whole nuclear negotiations. But uh, it appears now that uh, the Iranian government will go forward with some kind of, I don't know what they call it, uh, military trial or revolutionary guard trial. Um, and he's being considered a spy. The Washington Post is, of course, saying, no, he's a reporter. Uh, there's no spying involved. And uh, Rezian also has an Iranian wife who, who was held for a while, and she's since been freed, again, with no specific charges. Um, a very strange situation for someone that is so high profile and so obvious. There was no secret that he's the Washington Post uh, reporter, and and that becomes even more clear when he appears on television uh, openly about who he is, and he sits with his wife, and he talks about life in Iran and what he likes about it and what maybe scared him a little bit. Um, so this is pretty uh, sad news, and um, I'm yet to see the silver lining. I think we had talked about how maybe if negotiations went well, they might include freeing him as part of the deal, but as we see... Uh, even the deal is in a weird state since last we did a program we had I think uh, the Ayatollah saying we're not necessarily going to do this right I don't know if you noticed that Tim but there was a news there was this news not just item but a whole conversation about how the Ayatollah of Iran was saying the nuclear deal is not set in stone we may not do it because the US isn't being honest and then the US made some kind of strong response so immediately I had declared last program we're there, we're where we need to be, victory, uh, an agreement, and now we see there's an agreement on the table, but not everybody, including very powerful interests, are, are in line with that agreement, and here we have what is probably just one person who's caught in between, a victim of this whole thing. My impression is that this is all part of the ongoing internal struggle in Iran between the conservative forces and the more liberal forces. I mean, the, it's a very young country, so many of the young people are far more open to the West than the um, old religious establishment is. And I, I get the feeling that even those... Um, well, trials where there's no real trial, but the imprisonment of this uh, reporter... Um, is part of the big game of maintaining the notion that the U.S. is the enemy. And that's something that has been very popular in the last decades and it sort of serves the purpose of, you know, having an evil force that is uh, worse than, <laughs> than what you have locally. It's always helpful to maintain uh, your power. And um, I wonder if this is just part of it. Uh, do you know if this is this case is sort of made public in Iran or is this something that's just known to the West and the US in particular? I think it's public in Iran only now. Uh, in other words, I, I, I'm not totally sure, but it, this is the first time that there are actually charges, official charges, and he does have a lawyer. Uh, she's the one who's most quoted, and she's a lawyer in Iran, Leila Ashan is, uh, or Asan. Mm -hmm. And so I think this is at least... Um, whether or not it's publicly discussed before this point, now there are official charges. Yeah? Now the government says, see, this is why we, we have this man in prison. Uh, but yeah, that's an interesting question. How well known is this case in Iran? Um, I would assume if it is known, it's known only as a very clear, this person is a spy, therefore there's a trial. You know, there's no, I don't think there's much of a bigger discussion that would be allowed 
Um, but yeah, uh, I don't know. It, it's it's a strange thing. I, I was thinking also. I'm watching the Ayatollah. Uh, or I'm reading about the Ayatollah saying that the nuclear deal is not set in stone. The U.S. is dishonest in some of the details. And, you know, he, he makes his initial announcement that, that he doesn't necessarily think the agreement is going to happen on Twitter, you know, <laughs> on social media. I mean, this is the state of the world, uh-huh. right? Here we have the Ayatollah, a guy who is uh, the leader of a movement that says, look, the West, uh, especially the United States, don't trust them. And hey, you know, it's not a bad point. There have been a lot of lies, and and and, but it's a, it's just amazing how the tools, the technology, it's all from the West. What do we? I mean, <laughs> the Ayatollah made his announcement on Twitter. Anyway, yeah, I just <laughs> I, mean, I got stuck on that for a it's second. It's just an accepted news outlet these days. Yeah, I, yeah. I, have, I have the impression this is the. It could be on the one hand, it could be a good cop, bad cop game. Iran is playing here, so both sides sort of hand in hand. Um, you know that you still maintain yeah. the uh, this image that you know there's no done deal and and uh, the West just can't start um, upping their demands and you know make uh, Iran agree to anything they like. Mm. Um, or it could be just yeah. the internal struggle. Uh, as I said before, between the conservative yeah. and more liberal forces, but yeah, I I have the feeling it's sort of both because I also feel that the conservatives have the problem that they have to f- somehow maintain or regain or try to regain um, their standing in the Iranian uh, public which is still demanding more openness and uh, wants to, you know, more or less be in, in peace with everybody. And they see that yeah. that the problem is probably uh, a local thing. Yeah. We'll see. Yeah. I'm hoping that, yeah, he'll, he'll be released. Uh, he seemed like a very interesting guy and his articles were always very good. Uh, but yeah, let's move on to the next item. This one was very interesting. Uh, um, China, this one coming out of China. China, the, the president, Xi Jinping, was in Pakistan this week and he announces a $46 billion investment in Pakistan. Uh, it's it's a big move. It makes them the now the number one investors over the United States, who had around something around thirty billion invested in Pakistan. Um, and the focus for China is going to be uh, infrastructure, connecting both countries, both via land, uh, and they also want to build up the port. I believe. Uh, uh, remember that Pakistan does have a port down south, uh, Karachi, and so forth. But uh, the project includes a superhighway. Um, a rail link, pipelines, and what's interesting, not only this, you know, we've, it's well-known thing, you know, the shift in power in our world uh, to China, perhaps from the U.S., but um, that a lot of these pipelines and connections will go through the, the infamous Baluchistan, the, the, this region of Pakistan where uh, a lot of insurgents and insurgency has been going on, and of course that the Pakistan military says they're going to stamp out, which apparently they're still stamping. I don't know how long they're going to be stamping. but uh, And this is where it's interesting because, of course, China comes in with a lot of money and commitment. And we know they do it. It's not a lie. It's, it's, they always come through with this kind of thing. But how well will they do 
in this context of tribal uh, uh, of an insurgency uh, where you know there is so much violence and so much unwillingness uh, to cooperate. Now, of course, what they're promising is the classic uh, better economy, uh, jobs, and that would be the answer normally to a lot of people's you know, the reasons that people go more radical or don't have anything going on in their lives. But I, um, I think a lot of people are skeptical about how successful they will be with this new Silk Road plan uh, that they have, but it's still hugely significant. And what nice news for the Pakistani government and maybe some Pakistanis, because, uh, you know, these are the kinds of things that, that keep your country going for a couple of years. Um, it's, it's quite a lot of money. I find it very, very interesting that, I mean, we're talking about an article in the Times of India <laughs> and, it, and it's talking about the 46 uh, dollar billion. In, uh, there's actually one. Okay. Um, I think they relate to US dollars. Yes, yes, they do. Yeah. It doesn't say, you know. <laughs> it doesn't no, no, it's, it's explicitly say the, the, the currency. <laughs> it's just yeah. the, the dollar sign. That's that's all there is. So we're yeah. talking about forty six. That's 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 quite a lot. And it's interesting yeah. that that the China in general. I mean, uh, you can say about China whatever you want, you know. But uh, they have been increasing their global engagement in many countries, and we've been talking about the influence in Africa before, for instance. Yeah. that while the US is usually present with military uh, China is increasing their presence by investment into industries and uh, buildings and infrastructure in general yeah. that's a very um, intelligent way of doing it hmm uh, yeah, it's it's known that of the thirty-one billion—that's the number for the U.S. Uh, uh, investment, if we call it that. I mean, it's direct aid to Pakistan. I believe it's something like ninety-nine or, or in the high ninety percentage, uh, just for security. Uh, mm. And there we have the difference between how the U.S. does things or has been doing things, and how China does things. Uh, the interest is the same, actually. Uh, they both want from Pakistan. A, a stable, secure nation where, yeah, a lot of linkage, including especially pipelines, uh, can run. So the interest is the same when it comes to China and the U.S., but the, of course the question now is who's going to be successful, which plan? Um, you know, you look at the names of which Chinese companies are, are included in this investment, and you have names like the Three Gorges Dam Corporation, <coughs> China Power, um, Energy, Zonergy, which is one of their big energy companies. So we can see here that it's not, uh, <laughs> it's not you know, uh, Blackwater or whoever they're called nowadays. It's not these big military contractors. It's, um, it's infrastructure. And a, a, a smart person would perhaps say, well, infrastructure is the name of the game. If you get that, life improves. And that should prove true, but will it in this case? It certainly worked in, in a lot of nations, uh, including in Africa. But yeah, this will be an interesting challenge, Pakistan. It is right there. It's a neighbor. Uh, so this is especially a place where, where China should be, needs to be successful. Also, don't forget that China in its west, that would be the primary connection here, uh, with Pakistan, has its own insurgency 
Um, uh, and in some ways, this might also be addressing that, maybe cooperation with Pakistan, uh, since they have a common problem, uh, groups of people uh, on these edges that, that want to rebel against the government. Yeah, so in general, I think what, what we see is that China is really becoming the mm, by far the most important force now for the econom economic development in, uh, in Asia. They're investing everywhere and they're uh, showing more presence by, by doing this. Yeah, and, and, and getting into areas like Pakistan, uh, down the road, maybe Afghanistan, you know, this is, this is harder, right? They've, they've, for me, they've done the, the easier steps in the world. They've gone to places where um, it wasn't in their neighborhood necessarily and, and been active financially uh, building infrastructure. Now they're getting into a neighborhood where they, although very nearby, they've avoided it, perhaps for the reasons we're talking about, because it is so complicated. Um, so let's see how they do and, and how their approach works. All right. Yeah, let's go to another uh, big crisis that's almost out of the news. Uh, yeah. And uh, that a new humanitarian crisis as well. Yeah, so and and it's funny what you said because I get the same feeling at least in the in the news sources that that I make use of the situation in Yemen. Uh, continues to fall in terms of headlines. You know, it's it's lower on the list. Um, I, I I don't think it's because the fighting has died down. Uh, it was announced uh, last week. The Red Cross uh, was the focus here, talking about how the um, humanitarian situation is getting worse and worse. Uh, they talk about the um, especially food access to food and and above all. Medical, of course, medical supplies. Uh, remember that Yemen, when it comes to the aspect of food, they import most of their food. So a crisis like this makes it even harder than it normally is to get access to that food. Uh, uh, ports are basically closed down. Airports are closed down. Um, so this was an article that we're going to include in our, in our notes from the Global Post that was an interview with the uh, Red Cross. And they talk about, on the one hand, that they are able to function, to get around. On the other hand, there are huge shortages of food, water, fuel. Uh, they talk about the complication of the bombings uh, by Saudi Arabia, the, the, the aerial bombings, and that they are in touch with the Saudi Air Force. They've told them where they're operating. That's how the Red Cross works. So they know, um, but still, the fact that there are airstrikes going on in, in for example, the capital uh, makes it very complicated. They say the capital in particular, Sana, is in very bad situation when it comes to food access. Um, and, and it continues to get worse. We could see outbreaks of disease and people want to get out. Also, again, with this whole theme of escaping such a horrible situation, and they're quite trapped uh, with all, so many borders and, and air links shut down. Uh, so, you know, this is just one more view and a view that's often missing in the media from people on the ground about how bad things are getting. You know, I've, I've mentioned it before in this program. I have friends who are aid workers, not with the Red Cross, with other organizations. Um, and these days, they're at a loss because they're showing, they have their own photos of, of destroyed homes and suffering people, and they have that feeling that n nobody is paying attention or, or nobody feels like they can do anything, so it just will carry on. 
um, a very odd reality in a world that's so connected and where we can know so much. Um, Yemen is increasingly just taken as, well, I don't know, it's still going. Oh, well, or it's just yeah. taken with a certain degree of lack yeah. of attention. Yes. Uh, I mean, on the one hand, it's just repeating news, you know, okay, the military action is taken uh, against rebels in a country True. whose political situation is totally confusing for for many 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 years now and it's you know yet a, yet another <laughs> battlefield yeah. for extremists and 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 who cares you know so in that sense it mm -hmm. fails to make news because it's nothing really new and people are bored of um, you know big numbers of refugees or it's 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 just a number that doesn't impress and It's it's a de deplorable situation, but you know we all know it's reality. 170 people dying in a plane crash in uh, in Switzerland or Germany or France. That's that's big news. That's a tragedy, you know. But yeah. uh, multiple of these uh, people being in refugee camps and so on, we are not directly related to is still not making the headlines. Mm. And, yeah, it's... Uh, I don't know really what to do about this. It's a very... I mean, it's also part of the complexity of the situation is very difficult to comprehend. You just don't know who is against who and why and what all those different shades of... Uh, Islamic uh, religion is, you know. <laughs> um, so I think, especially in the West, it's a kind of helplessness also regarding the particular situation. We just don't know about enough about the culture to actually say who is the bad guy, who is the good guy. Yeah, yeah, and 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 we get these. Uh, yeah, it's a it's a complicated story. And look, humans, we can only. Apparently, we can only handle so much in, in information that we get. Um, a lot of out, news outlets, uh, newer ones, have tried to address this issue. We remember we've discussed Syria deeply, which you brought to the program, about this attempt to understand a conflict uh, from a sort of the ground up, from, from individual stories, from, um, from the point of view of those on the ground. And a lot of the news we get from Yemen... Uh, for various reasons, is from the people uh, in power, in government, in the you know the very official stories. So there's lots of articles today, for example, on the U.S. sending um, more ships to to Yemen uh, to as a, and they say this is a sort of sign to Iran to not keep arming uh, the rebels. Uh, so that's a story you'll hear a lot. There's also, there was an airstrike. Okay, we know about these. The Saudis are doing them, or the Saudi-led coalition is doing them. And so there was an airstrike and where, where that led to multiple explosions. They must have hit something important. They're not saying exactly what, but it, it resulted in more explosions than probably was intended and killed many civilians, uh, uh, at least 25. Um, and, you know, this kind of thing, again... It's just the official story, right? What was it like for the people that are in the buildings that survived, that live in those areas? That's the story that, in theory, we could get nowadays, but the truth is, those stories rarely bubble to the top in this sort of news and social media world that we have. Um, so, yeah, it's odd to live in a, in a world of so much information and rapid communication, and yet it's not enough to 
stop conflicts or, or, or at least, I don't know, save innocent people, it's, it's not enough. I mean, maybe that's no surprise to people. It still surprises me sometimes. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're talking... So Yemen continues. We're, we're talking about a small world, but it's not yet small enough to really consider something that's taking place one or 2,000 kilometers away to be local news. You know, it's still a remote place. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, let's, uh, let's move on. Some, some potentially positive news. Uh, it's been eight months off for uh, schools in, in Sierra Leone after the Ebola outbreak. And this week, they've gone back to school. <laughs> and I was looking uh, through Reuters uh, at some of their video content. Reuters, besides doing text, of course, does photo and video. And they were just uh, visiting schools in Sierra Leone, uh, uh, talking to students and teachers about what they're doing. And it's an interesting situation. Um, you know, it, it may be because it's for the media, but you get so many students coming forward and telling, you know, journalists what they've learned about Ebola. And it's a long list, right? They all know now how it's transferred, uh, all this new knowledge. And they're taking temperature of anybody that walks into the school. Every student gets his temperature taken with these nice handy devices that you use for usually measuring the temperatures of water and such. And it's just, you know, you hold it up to somebody's head, click, see your temperature. Um, so, you know, it's a small news item in the grand scheme of things, but after such a huge uh, crisis that isn't over, actually, right? Uh, Ebola is still around, so that's why we have these measures now. Uh, but at the same time, the show must go on. School already eight months uh, off is quite a lot for the development of a, of a child and a student. So um, it's an interesting sort of statement to say, look, it's time now, and, and we will keep in mind that there is still Ebola out there, and, and we'll educate our, our children about what to do, what not to do, and in the meantime, we can actually continue to get an education. So I thought it was an interesting story and a sort of positive story of, of a return to some kind of normal life. Just as a recap, is Sierra Leone the place that was hit the worst by Ebola? Uh, no, Liberia counts as, I believe, the, the place with the most victims. Uh, who's got the list of most victims of Ebola? Um, but I know that Sierra, uh, Liberia was the country that was most criticized for the handling of it and where I believe the outbreak was most out of control. Uh, so I'm not sure, uh, for example, that could be something for next news program, what's going on with schooling in, uh, in Liberia. Uh, and I, I would assume it's taking longer because of the way they mismanaged it in the beginning. Yeah, that's a good question, actually. Where do you go for the latest on Ebola news generally? It's, it's such a, there's no one source. Yeah. Hmm. hmm. No Ebola weekly. Yeah. No, not yet. <laughs> they could cover the good stories. Yeah, and the I think it's stories. good, good, good news that this doesn't exist. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, yeah, that's, that shows that it's gotten to a certain level. <laughs> there is, of course, the Wikipedia entry on on Ebola in West Africa, but uh, yeah, I didn't have it open in front of me anyway. Yeah, but that's um, probably the yeah. most accurate uh, collection you can get. I mean, that's that's one of the main advantages of Wikipedia. I think that whenever news tries to uh, sink in and nobody's really taking care uh, anymore mm -hmm. uh, about a daily reporting that you can still find these articles that at least somehow get a regular treatment and update on, on what's happening. 
Yeah, yeah, making the connections too between all the different country stories. So I do see on the Wikipedia entry for the Ebola virus epidemic in West Africa, Liberia had 10,000 cases, uh, which is not the most cases actually, but they had 4,486 deaths as of, as of last month, as of this month. And on the other hand, Sierra Leone had more cases, but it had less deaths, uh, 12,244 cases, 3,800 uh, or so deaths. So it's far less. And the third place was actually Guinea, and Guinea had only 3,000. So a big drop off on 2,300 deaths. So Sierra Leone, uh, more cases, but it seems better handled. And, and, and why? Well, you'd have to look into the details of how they handled uh, from the moment that the outbreak started. Um, yeah. Yeah, but still a return to normalcy. I was I was sort of pleased in, in watching this. So we're putting the Wikipedia right. page uh, in our show notes as a reference because not all the news is really coming from news organizations. No, yeah, it, and it comes in bits and pieces. It's true. Let's go to something technological, and I think there are a lot of radio fans uh, out there. Um, but we're looking at this very uh, specific case, I guess, of Norway. Norway announced they're going to stop FM radio. It sounds like a campaign. Stop FM radio. Um, and it's tyranny. No, they're going to uh, discontinue it in 2017, and they're going to move to digital uh, radio. Now, I've heard about digital radio for a long time. Many of us probably have. I don't own a digital radio. I don't know if people do, it, this story makes me very curious to own one and see what I can hear in this particular country that I'm in. But Norway anyway is saying that um, it's, it's to the benefit uh, of broadcasters to move to digital. Um, also, there'll be a diversity of, uh, of channels, which is, of course, something that you and I are very interested in. Um, so it's an interesting move. I didn't know, like, Norway doesn't even have, for example, AM radio. Uh, of course, I grew up with both AM and FM uh, in the United States. Um, here in the Netherlands, I don't really listen to radio, but I know the FM dial a little bit. And I knew that digital radio was something that was coming. Uh, often said, you know, any day now, it's going to become a thing. But I have not really been following the evolution of that in Europe. And here we have Norway making one very uh, solid commitment for 2017. I mean, Norway is always very good in being the exception in Europe for, for many, many things. <coughs> You know, especially their their financial situation, which has always been very good due to the oil income, uh, enabled them to come up with solutions no other country would do uh, the same way. Uh, I'm very surprised to hear that they do not have AM radio, especially given the size of their country and the remoteness of some places. Mm -hmm. So that means that they have a rather good uh, radio infrastructure because... With FM, you can only cover so much, so they need to have quite a few outlets there. But then it's probably also mostly state-run, so it's mm -hmm. more a it decision from yeah. the top to change it, and that makes it easier. Uh, I mean, it's not um, a thing that has, is only happening there. Other countries have also tried to go uh, digital, and I think the UK and um, Denmark have made... Um, some progress here but no country has really come to the point where they said like now we're going to switch everything off the discussion is coming up every now and then in Germany too and I try to look up before 
our show what the current situation on this is uh, I think they have passed one or two deadlines already and it's always continuously being moved into the future uh, mm -hmm. because in my view uh, I think it's more a dream that's never going to uh, happen it might happen in Norway but um, I'm not so sure it's going to happen as easily in, uh, in Germany especially given the fact that on one hand The DAB Broadcasting, this is the technology we're talking about, uh, was uh, developed in the uh, in in the 90s. And then after a while, they saw that while technology was continuing to improve, they needed to upgrade the technology before it can take um, any major stakes here in, in the market. So there's DAB+, Plus, which is basically new audio encoding algorithms allowing for even more channels and uh, they've also optimized the problems um, that occur when you do digital transmission and you have to receive it in uh, fast moving vehicles, cars and so on so um, areas where analog doesn't really have Uh, big problems in particular you have to put some focus on in engineering when it comes to digital transmission so DAB plus is now on the list and it exists you can you know I have one of these receivers I switch it on and ah. it's the same you know shit you get on FM too <laughs> so and here's the problem you know it's of course it's in the interest of the sending side to be more efficient to have more channels or uh, spend less uh, money on distribution and so on but on the other hand we're living now in the internet age and broadcasting is more than just sending out an audio stream so with so many cars still uh, running on analog fm i'm not so sure this is going to happen anytime soon in bigger countries Just mm -hmm. because uh, you know the the value proposition here is that everybody can uh, receive it on the go and in pre-installed situation, and it's more mostly talking about cars here. Because who else is yeah. carrying around an FM receiver? Are you? Have you ever no. had a mobile FM receiver ever? I knew some phones, but I'd never had one of those phones. No. <laughs> Yeah, and then you don't know how to activate them or people just don't know they have it. And it's it's not that people are running around with uh, FM receivers and listen to radio all day. Well, it's more a weird vision. <laughs> uh, FM is uh, usually installed in cars and in um, kitchens or offices maybe. And that's basically uh, it. That's the outreach uh, you actually get. So what's happening, you know, Cars are getting internet. They're getting wired up mm -hmm. with internet and they're receiving streams. Uh, there have been satellite solutions too, but I think it's more or less clear that we're moving to internet-based distribution of uh, radio content anyway. So what's the big deal with mm -hmm. DAB Plus then? Because then you need yet another technology built into a, a, a car or kitchen or what whatnot. Um, where you have internet anyway that has even more channels. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, I can tell you, Tim, like, I don't know if it's a good example, but I think there's something to be learned. 
in the United States and I think Canada, which was part of this, the whole satellite radio pre-installed in a new car thing. Yeah. Uh, helped worked pretty well for for now. We're talking about only one cha- one uh, a company. It's Sirius, but it used to be two. Um, in that, people when they got their new car, they would try this service, and then after I don't know a month, it would be over, and you would either never use that aspect of your radio. It was one part of your radio, or you would subscribe. And they got a lot of subscribers, paid subscriptions, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, so it worked. To a decent extent uh, for satellite radio in the U.S., enough that one company seems to be able to survive. Um, um, so that wouldn't be another thing, you know, if you got cooperation from all new car, uh, well, all manufacturers to put in something like a digital radio and, and then you featured it and said, dear customer, look, we also include this. <laughs> um, this has some power. But yes, it takes a very long time. Maybe the self-driving cars that can come with digital radios. Yeah, I mean, it's not hard to imagine a, a near future where every car comes with a, a wireless hotspot. You know, wireless mm-hmm. hotspot in the car and a car that's always connected to the internet is just going to be a reality more or less soon. Everybody wants it. You know, you just want it for entertainment purposes, you want it for information purposes, you want to have your car being connected to all kinds of uh, things. And in a way, every car is already internet connected via the phones, you know, but adding such a phone to the car is not a big deal. Uh, Actually, it's even better than uh, carrying around your own internet device because... uh, You can have much better antennas in the car, the car... uh, uh, you can spend some technology on optimizing uh, reception and, 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 and working on the mm. several bands at the same time and so on. You don't have battery problems that you have with uh, a mobile phone. So delivery of internet by the car is just going to be a normal thing. And once you have that, you got more than just radio. You know, We're going to have TV on, uh, on every car. Sure. Well, I'm not going to be driving. I'll just be sitting there watching movies while they get self-driven. Yeah. So I don't really see the the, the value proposition here, and I think DAB is going to have a very hard time uh, establishing it, itself as a standard. There's another standard actually in uh, um, other countries. I think it's only popular, halfway popular in in uh, uh, France, called DRM. Uh, which is not stands for digital rights management in, in this <laughs> case, but for um, um, I always forget what the, the French term is, but it's Digital. global radio, radio mon- mondial, and uh, that's uh, not um, trying to replace um, FM, but more AM and being a very global radio. So that's something you can send around the planet. And uh, it more or less works, but I'm not so updated on what the current state of development is. But that's something very interesting that you can have a, a radio receiver, digital radio receiver, where you can receive radio everywhere on the planet. Hmm. Um, I like the idea. Yeah, that's that's something for countries that are not so likely to have uh, internet in every car in the next 10 years. All right, now let's get into some uh, interesting projects and changes in the in the world of information and media. Uh, we've got two today. Uh, one, uh, something we just, I think, found in the last uh, uh, 24 hours or so, this announcement that the KGB archives, this is the way it was titled anyway, uh, from 1917 
1991 will be uh, opened up, uh, open access. Um, and I was looking up the details. This announcement came on Friday, uh, April 10th. Um, and it actually comes from the Ukrainian parliament, which, which now brings up some questions for me. Um, it approved a bill that says these archives can be opened up and made public, um, and which, of course, would be very interesting. I think over the years, uh, occasionally the now FSB, the, the, the next generation of the KGB, has made public some old information, but it, there's never been a mass opening up of the archives. Um, so they have a list of what they call repressive bodies, because they were, um, that will be opening their their records, uh, which includes the KGB, but a lot of others, Ministry for State Security, um, Internal Affairs, all kinds of uh, uh, basically secret state uh, um, uh, bodies. The only thing I can't understand, and we would need someone, I think, um, from this this uh whole operation to explain it is if this is a decision from the ukrainian parliament how much does the ukraine have i said the i didn't mean to do that how much does ukraine have in terms of uh secret documents compared to what the the documents that are still in in russia uh have so in a way to me this looks like an opening of whatever they've got yes uh which is still probably a lot uh but it's not to be compared with the entire kgb opening up their archives no for sure not but and this also looks more like a retaliation uh plan than a real open access uh project but it might be interesting because uh, so far that's the only um Secret Service archives that's really uh, in the open as far as I know. Even the German Stasi documents, uh, while being researched on, were not really open access. It's not that you can... Uh, you know, download them and uh, analyze them. And it's also a question in what the role of privacy is going to be here because this will also mean that lots of um, people and families are going to be mentioned, including Ukrainians. Um, mm -hmm. So, I don't know. If this is just an announcement, we will see uh, if this is actually happening. Yeah, yeah, I'm going to wait to see what, what comes out. Uh, because even the language is interesting. I mean, look, there is a acknowledgement uh, of of not only that there was this KGB and, and the things they did, but they they publicly call them repressive bodies. I mean, it's, maybe this is a translation thing, but it definitely seems like they're they're making no secret of what they think of the past. And you don't get the same kind of uh, language out of Russia, who are much more tempered with the way they look at the past in the Soviet time as. Mm, good and bad and uh, they would probably not say repressive the repressive kgb you know but it's, it's a difference here and you're right i think there's an element here of the conflict that exists um so yeah now another tool on the list uh, for today an interesting development uh one i guess we knew was coming but it's finally here politico the long time uh, famous political blog, really, from the world of blogging, um, which made quite a splash in the world of U.S. politics, has now opened Politico.eu, um, and it's 
interesting on lots of fronts. I mean, look, we have occasionally touched on um, attempts to have news coming out of the EU, especially f- from the, the ruling bodies, uh, commission-related news, and there have been projects to, to bring more of this. But here we have a definitely instant major player when it comes to stories from within the EU, uh, political, but also economic. They have all the, the different sections, policy. Uh, they have uh, several people running around. Um, and it's cool to see the the German slash Irish slash Croatian uh, uh, names under the journalism names. I can see the already. Um, all hovering around the commission, uh, the council, and the parliament to to talk about what's going on policy wise there's lots of interesting humanitarian uh, related stories i just read one uh, this morning about the train that goes between kiev and moscow speaking of ukraine before and people who take this train regularly still now and they consider it you know the last link between kiev and moscow in so many ways and how that the vibe on that train has changed in the last few years. Um, so these kind of stories are what really interest me as a, as a human uh, interest kind of guy. But uh, there's plenty on the politics, on lobbying. Um, it's going to be good. And they even have a, a podcast. I'm yet to listen to it. I don't know if they've launched their first episode yet. Uh, I think maybe the introduction is up. So there's going to be a Politico in Europe podcast. Um could be this could be the beginning of something very interesting and instantly yeah instantly top three i think when it comes to news out of the eu can you tell me more about the role political is playing in the u.s because it was mine i mean you, you mentioned it as being a blog i uh, was more uh, taking notice of political uh, being actually a printed publication that is F- uh, delivering um, uh, yeah, a focus on, on politics that the newspapers didn't do. And from my understanding, political has um, gained I mean, a po- reputation of being a first-class news source for politicians in the U.S., uh, I, I had never thought about the whole printed uh, idea because it, it, it was in 2007 that it was launched. And I, I remember it, maybe that's just me, me mixing up history because I, I, you know, it was only 2007. It was, wasn't that long ago. But it was in this time where political blogs were at their height, which for me was between 2006 and 2008, the electing of, of Obama, um, the end of the Bush era. And uh, it was the online reporting that, that was a very big deal. Um, and not just text, there was video as well from Politico. It was fast. It was, yes, very politics focused, as the title suggests. Um, never really knew if it was more... Uh, so-called left or right, uh, knew it as neither in some ways, as definitely wanting to grab the headline, so whatever it takes. Um, But uh, I don't know, that's the era that I remember it from. Um, In those days, it was like 75 people. It wasn't very big. Uh, but now I think it's, it's, it's quite big. There's been quite a lot of investment and they even bought, uh, a new site or two along the way. So they've become very institutional and, and obviously because now we see them opening up a new operation in Brussels. That's when you know you're, you're definitely an institution. Um, uh, so it's gone global now. Uh, they even have a cooperation with, uh, I think, you know, the big publisher, uh, Springer, Springer. 
Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's who really uh, gave them what they needed on the Europe side to do this uh, Politico uh, project, and um, in, in Europe, I mean. So um, that's interesting. Yeah. Oh yeah, and there was the the European Voice, by the way, which is an old name. Uh, the European Voice in brussels and they're now collaborating with them it doesn't i don't think that they bought them or anything but there's a that's another it's a, partner it's in a, this whole yeah it's thing. a joint venture it's a yeah. joint venture so that's interesting so they didn't just come out of nowhere uh on the europe front either you know they made some key um deals slash alliances yeah but you're, you're talking about it as if it's been here forever I mean, uh, <laughs> 2007. Politico, it's old. Yeah, it's <laughs> it, it's old in, in in internet terms, but it's you know uh, more or less announced the same time the iPhone was announced. So it's a rather <laughs> uh, rather new player, and um, yeah, I, I found it very interesting that, and that's why I ask that my uh, to my knowledge, Politico has focused on politics in a way that other newspapers like True. Washington Post hasn't done. So especially the print uh, uh, magazine was on politics only and that's how they gained a lot of uh, momentum in the political scene in, in, in the US and especially being a print, um, also being distributed via print. That's, I'm not focusing on it being a printed newspaper, but they had a printed mm. version that was only this, and this lying on a political uh, desks in, in Washington would probably made uh, an, an interesting impact because everybody knew if I pick this up, this is all going to be about what you know drives my day as being a politician. Yeah, yeah, and, and and definitely that's a big part of it. But uh, also keep in mind, and we see it even with the now EU uh, uh, version, but this already existed. Within politics, it's interesting what they do that very well is this conversation about lobbying. Uh, they themselves talk about the media, so <laughs> very meta. And of course, in the U.S. context, it was always the the presidency. Uh, so yes, yes, very politically focused, and then some very specific areas within politics that yeah, you don't always get uh, detailed coverage anymore um, in in regular press. So we're we're, we're probably. Um you know, a, a bit early in recommending this as a new source because it <laughs> hasn't really proven to be a valuable one, but at least we suspect it to be interesting. So that's our contribution for this week. Yeah, yeah, and I and I like the stories that they've already got out there. I think it's this could be interesting. Yeah, and that does indeed do it for our news list for this week. Uh, any big announcements, Tim, for the coming? Well, what are we? April twenty first uh, for the coming weeks. Well, yeah, well, um, I'm going to focus on uh, my podcasting workshop in uh, Berlin, and then we're going to probably we're going to meet at Republika. Not sure. Yes. Um, are you yes. going to be there? Yes, a bit. Um, so that's uh, some time I'm going to spend in Germany in the next two weeks. Okay, and me too. I'll, I'll meet you there uh, uh, in Berlin around the time of Republika. So that's something to look forward to. And uh, yeah. There, there'll be lots and of interesting podcasts. Maybe we have a chance of uh, doing a news show in Berlin. <laughs> we will try. <laughs>
Yeah, we will try. I would actually love to do so because I'm really fed up by bad Skype connections and uh, <laughs> not as interactive as they could be podcasts. <laughs> yes. Agreed, agreed. Okay, okay. well, uh, and as always, you know where to find us, uh, so feel free to leave the comments, add to what we've started uh, on this uh, uh, modest podcast, and thank you for all your contributions. Goodbye. See you next time. Bye. <laughs>